Uh, good morning, Gospel Hope. Good, good, good seeing you all again. Um, just in case you've been wondering and thought perhaps I was MIA, I think Pastor Ryan told you last week I had a chance to share with uh, just another family in the Lord up in uh, Loganville in that area. And so that was a, an awesome time um, uh, sharing God's word there. And they're also um, opening up or launching the Who's Your One campaign. So that was awesome uh, to share with them. And then, of course, a week prior to that, I was um, serving our uh, first through third graders, uh, which is an awesome group. Uh, love uh, watching the Word of God work itself into the hearts of our youngest disciples. And then, uh, so anyway, just an awesome time over the last few weeks. And so I apologize if you haven't seen me. I didn't want you to think ill of me. Uh, I've been, uh, uh, had my hand to the plow, right? All right, let's, uh, let's go before our God and ask for his help. Father, in the name of Jesus this morning, um, we've already said it multiple times that we are a people that are totally dependent upon you. Uh, but this isn't just a statement, Lord God, uh, that sounds nice on paper because it's good religious jargon. It's actually true. We desperately need you. And sometimes, oh God, our level of desperation is not apparent to us, even though it is always apparent to you. And I pray, oh God, this morning that as we are sitting here and as I am standing here, uh, Lord God, we come with open hands. We come with ready hearts. Uh, we don't even know what we don't know. We don't know all where our blind spots are. That's why they are called blind spots. Lord God, and we just ask that you would meet us by your grace. Show us ourselves in your word where we need radical change, where we need encouragement, where we need to be taught, where we need to be built up. Lord God, you do what you do. Uh, your word is living. Uh, we pray also, God, that you would just safeguard our hearts against distractions and preoccupations, that we would not give our attention to anything other than you. We would fight for that, oh God, to sanctify our hearts before you in this way. I pray, oh God, that you would uh, help me along, Lord God, in your word. Uh, it is not enough to simply study, Heavenly God, or to, or, to, or to prepare, Heavenly Father, we need you. If your Holy Spirit does not participate, Heavenly Father, this is an exercise in futility. And so, Lord God, we need you. We need you in even more ways than I've been able to list out. And we beg, oh God, that you would come and meet us in that need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So in the second segment of our series entitled The Encounters, I want to talk to you this morning about the born identity. The born identity. Uh, that's what we're doing. So Jesus has called Nicodemus and told him that he needs to be born again. And uh, exactly what does that mean? We'll just explore and discover that as we work throughout today's passage. As Pastor Ryan said, uh, John chapter 3 is home to one of the most popular passages of scripture uh, in, in Western culture. I don't know how it ranks in the rest of the world, but indeed, one of the most popular passages of scripture, and even the most fiercest and ardent unbeliever and people who are the, with the greatest distance from the Bible, even if they cannot uh, tell you where it is located in the text, they can definitely complete the passage if you were to start the text. And so John 3.16 is quite a popular passage. And so uh, I'll be honest with you, when something becomes incredibly popular, I also believe it begins to lose some of its potency. And so we're going to unpack John chapter 3 uh, together this morning, and we're going to spend some time as one of our friends would say, even double-clicking on John 3.16 to make sure that we have not allowed the popularity of the passage to just make it passe in our hearts and minds. And we are really living through John 3.16 uh, full throttle. Um, 
Many of you who have spent any time with me or around me, you may have heard my story of having grown up or being born in uh, Alabama and then uh, moved here at the age of 12. I lived here until I was about 23, and then 1996, I moved up to Detroit, and I lived in Detroit for a season up until about 2005. And so uh, just to kind of give you some more uh, content on what happened between 1996 and 2005, here it is. Uh, So I moved there as a single man. Eventually, I married in 1998. And uh, during that time, it was our tradition, as are many young people who live a great distance from their families, to come back here during the holidays and visit my parents. And each time that I would come back to visit... They would always share with me particulars and details about this new area in the metro suburbs or Atlanta metropolitan area that they were going to be moving to. They actually broke ground and uh, built a house out in the eastern suburbs. And on a regular basis, as we would come and visit them, they would always have new data and new ideas and new points that they would punctuate how nice it is to live where they live. And it wasn't a sales pitch, but they gave us information. And uh, my wife and I, we enjoyed it. We, we, We would come down and visit. And and sure enough, as we would visit, as per our tradition, on a regular basis, we became acquainted with some of the amenities and the niceties and, you know, the rolling greens and uh, the property values and all of the data points that might influence a family to want to live in a particular area. And so we thought about those things. And uh, so one year, uh, with much prayer and some other compelling uh, emphasis, we decided to no longer just think about this nice area, but to actually live in this particular area. And so we uh, packed up the wagon, loaded up all of our stuff in a moving truck, emptied out our house, put a for sale sign in the yard, drove 780 miles from Detroit into Metro Atlanta and unloaded, bought a piece of property that would become our very own and we decided to no longer visit, but to actually live there. Why is this story important to you? Well, the story is important because I believe that it reflects a migration that any of us who actually knows Christ have all gone through, particularly if you've grown up here in Western culture, a land that is inundated with the facts, the ideas, the amenities, the promises, the positive notations, and the data of Christianity and Jesus in particular. It is very easy to grow up in America knowing about Jesus, and it is also very easy to grow grow up believing that somehow knowing about Jesus also equals living in him or having faith in him or actually knowing him. And this could not be further from the truth. You see, what happened to our family was from 1996 to 2005, we accumulated all of these details to the extent that anyone that would ask us to describe the Atlanta metro suburbs, we could indeed describe it with amazing detail. Because one, we had friends and family who lived there, and we had also visited on a regular basis. But being able to describe the region in detail does not mean that we necessarily live there or we have life there. Where am I going with all of this? Nicodemus, like many of us that we'll see in today's text, was compelled to make the transition from simply knowing about Jesus to actually doing life in him. There is a distinct difference between knowing deep details about something or someone and actually making the move from knowing about to actually believing in. And so today as we read Nicodemus' story, I would ask you to kind of think about all things under this umbrella, this thought idea. Um, 
a real encounter with Christ should move us from knowing about him to living in and also for him. A real encounter with Christ should move us from simply knowing about him to actually living in him and for him. Just to kind of rewind back into the illustration for just a moment, I want you to think about what had to happen to our family for us to move from just knowing about this particular location to actually making our life in that location. Here's what had to happen. We had to be prepared to put certain things in the rearview mirror. We had to be prepared to put all of our eggs in a particular basket. We had to be prepared to give up certain things to get to certain things. We had to make a series of radical, life-altering decisions that did more than just allow us to be fans of a place on the map, but to say, this is where we will do life. And guess what? Changing our location and where we did life also changed something about us because we didn't just move on the map. We radically changed cultures. We radically changed relationships. We radically changed everything about our surrounding lives. And this is exactly the call of Christ that we would do more than just know good details and facts about him, as is so easy to do if your tradition is to visit with your family church services on a regular basis. All of us can be inundated with great facts about the Christ, but inundated with great facts and even being able to quote John 3.16 doesn't mean that we place faith in him, nor does it mean that we know him as the son of God, nor that we believe in him in a way that produces eternal life. So with that in mind, I want to ask you throughout the course of today's message to put on your Hoosier One hats. And the reason I want you to put your Hoosier One hats on is this, no pun intended, there is no magic in those markers. There's no magic in those markers. Those people will not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ nor place faith in him because we wrote their names on those posters. No one on that board will come to know Christ because of the surface that it was written on or the, the passion with which you wrote it. There is something that we must do, and that is we need to share the gospel because there is power in the gospel. No magic in the marker, but there is power in the gospel. The Bible tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but to anyone who would place their faith in Christ and believe the message of the gospel, there is power to actually transform. So again, no magic in the marker. You and I have been called to share the gospel, open up our mouths, and tell the details of Christ's wonderful and awesome love. And we're going to get there in just a moment, but just bear with me. I want you to hear me clearly. The Bible says, how will those people on that board hear unless somebody goes and tells them? That's us. We are a part of God's plan for how people who have not heard the gospel will hear it. And so if you wrote names there, I want you to hear me clearly. There's no magic in the marker, but there is power in the gospel. And you and I have been called to go and share it with not only them, but others also. So let's get into today's text. Um, it's interesting, as I look at verses 1 and 2, they say this. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, this man came to him, that is Jesus, at night saying, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. 
absolutely true statements. Great data points, Nicodemus. You hit the nail on the head when it comes to the theological pop quiz as to who Christ is and what he can do. No one can do these things except God be with him. But I find it interesting, Jesus' response to him is not a glowing affirmation that he has gotten the right answers. Jesus then turns and says, I assure you, in verse 3, unless someone is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So much for pleasantries like, how's your family, Nicodemus? Hey, man, what makes you come out at night? I usually deal with the Pharisees during the daytime. Come on in, wash your feet. Would you like some tea? right? No, Jesus just jumps right in and replies, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is an interesting statement. Again, Nicodemus has the right information about the Christ. He knows the right facts about the Christ, but Jesus sees through his ability to give the right answers in equip class and says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so then, if, here it is. So Jesus calls us to be reborn and not merely rebranded. What do I mean? Jesus calls us to be reborn and not merely rebranded. In America today, when it comes to the communication of the gospel, there is a great deal of rebranding. Everyone is looking for a way to make their lives over, dissatisfied with their current performance, uh, dissatisfied with how things are going, always interested in uh, a better version of themselves like me 2.0 or 3.0, this is who I am based on my New Year's resolution or whatever critical moments cause us to begin to say, I need to step my game up. We're always interested in rebranding. When an organization or a company rebrands, why do they do it? They want to change the public perception of who they are because they invest greatly in public confidence and public opinion. We too, not just great organizations, are on a never-ending quest, aside from a relationship with Christ, to rebrand. We are always looking to improve our impressions, or else social media would not even be a thing. There would be no such thing as a selfie if we as a culture were not inundated and idolized the idea of personally rebranding. Our phones would not be able to take a million photos. You know how you just hold the button and it goes Grrr. Our phones wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't know that we would be dissatisfied with some of our poses. We are a culture that is inundated with the ideals of rebranding, upholding the best possible public opinion of ourselves. But rebirth is exactly that. It is a call to be reborn. Salvation is a call to be reborn, not just to be rebranded. Not just to improve the way others perceive me or the way others' of others opinion of me, or not even just to improve the way I feel about the current outcomes. Again, companies only rebrand when they feel like their momentum in the market is starting to wane. What do we do to raise the nose of the plane and to become more productive? We do the same thing. And Jesus says rebranding isn't enough. We have to be reborn. Well, then if Jesus wants us to be reborn, how exactly do we do it? Let's listen to his words. Chapter 3, verse 3 again. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, uh, I assure you, unless someone is born of both water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus always does this. 
He has a classic mechanism in many of his public and private messages that sounds at first listen to be illogical or even intellectually untenable, and it demands that people listen with different ears other than just the ears of intellect. Now, Jesus is not saying anything illogical, but it is something that demands that we, can, that, that we do something other than just think we know Jesus by virtue of the facts, but that we begin to trust him based on who he is as a person. Let me give you some examples. Jesus would say to a crowded audience, he would say, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. Whoa. To, a, to an audience that, that the cannibalism is off the map. It's, it, cannibalism is off the map for everybody in the room, regardless of your culture, right? There's nobody, I mean, even if you eat beef tartare, you ain't into just like, you know, human flesh, right? But Jesus says stuff like this. And do you know that, that the Bible tells us that when Jesus said that, that many of his own disciples walked away? And then he turned to the 12 and said, are y'all about to peace out as well? Jesus is famous for doing this, but what he wanted to say was that unless you wholly and completely take me in, you have no part of me. There is no tiptoeing. There is no partial Jesus. There is no appetizer. There is no Jesus light. There is no gospel, you know, no pre-gospel. You and I must be prepared to hook, line, and sinker, wholly trust Christ if we will have part in him. We must be reborn. Jesus does it again. The woman at the well. Hey, Girl, if you knew who you was talking to, you would ask me, and I would have given you water that would have changed your life. And she was like, man, you don't even have a bucket. It sounds intellectually untenable, doesn't it? But what he was doing was pointing her to a different kind of water, not the kind that you can catch with buckets. But it wasn't illogical what she was inviting her to to understand that he was the actual source of eternal life. Jesus does it again, and in, in other places, he even told another audience, he told another audience this, he says, unless, he said, it is easier for a, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you know what his disciples said? Well, then who can actually get saved? And Jesus immediately says, there are things that are impossible with man, that are absolutely possible with God. So over and over again, Jesus is always putting people, us included, in a position where just knowing about him and being able to intellectually tag along with the messages and believe that you know the dogma, the doctrine, and the right ideas about religion, those things are not enough. John tells us in John chapter 20, 21 that the whole purpose with which he wrote this book was that we might know that Jesus Christ, or believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and as a result of that, coming to that conclusion, we would then go another step and believe in him, believe on him, and as a result, have eternal life. It's the whole plan of the book that we might believe this is about Jesus. And so Jesus calls us to be reborn, not merely rebranded. Jesus calls us to, 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 to reboot our thinking. I want you to think about, now, why would that be necessary to say to Nicodemus. Jesus' message also was, I, I, sometimes I feel like it's an insult to say that Jesus is a, is, is, is a genius. He's, he's beyond that, but I don't know if we have a bigger word. The all-wise, the all-knowing, the all-powerful God. And so to hear him and watch him preach, he tailors this message just for Nicodemus. Why is this challenge 
of moving from just what you know to having to be reborn, why is that kind of challenge necessary for Nicodemus? Nicodemus belongs to a community or a sect, one of the most important biblical sects of people in, 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 in Judaism, called the Pharisees. Most of us in our introduction and our understanding of the Pharisees have a, quite a negative view. But I'll tell you, there is something noble about the Pharisees. Yes, they are a, a hypocritical group, as Jesus pointed out, some of them, but not all of them. But here is the genesis of a Pharisee. It was a group of people who, in the absence of God actively speaking through the prophets, a period of silence, said, we must protect the legacy of God and righteousness by, 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 by being the vanguard of what it means to keep the law. And where they went a step too far was they began to create these fence laws, groups of laws around God's law, and raise up these oral traditions that they put on the same platform as the written tradition of God's word. And they began to hold people accountable for following a group of rules, an intricate and complex system of rules that they created that was designed to protect them from ever overstepping the boundaries that God created. Noble in its intent, but hypocritical in its outcome, because many of them didn't follow God's law because they were so busy trying to create and keep the laws that they had manufactured. And so what does it mean to be reborn? What it means to be reborn is this, that we must, we must place total faith in what God has done and not what we believe we can do for ourselves. That's what it means to be reborn, not just to rebrand. God isn't just looking to change the exterior packaging. You understand what the Pharisees did, they created a culture of self-righteousness within Israel, where people began to think about ways of raising their own moral compliance rather than deepening their deep trust in God's own righteousness. You, you see that? By raising up new laws for themselves or raising up additional laws for themselves, it allowed them to feel by virtue of their own keeping of the laws and rules that they were raising their personal righteousness rather than deepening their trust in God's righteousness. And so when Jesus comes along, he says, you guys need to be completely and totally reborn. Now, this idea of reborn, where does it come from? John tells us in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, he gives us uh, uh, not a sneak preview, but he tells the whole story of what it means to be reborn. Look at these verses with me. John 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, that is Jesus. His own people did not receive him. But to all that did receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of the will of God. This idea of being reborn comes from the fact that when we place trust in Christ, we are then born in a way that was different from how we were born originally. We need to be reborn. The Bible tells us, or Jesus tells us here, that a person cannot see the kingdom unless they are born both of the water and of spirit. Some might believe that that's baptism, but that is inconsistent with what the rest of the scriptures teach, that baptism is never a, uh, a prerequisite of salvation. This is to be born of water, of the natural birth, and you must be born of a spiritual birth. You must have a legacy. You must be twice born in order to have relationship with the Christ, not born under your own circumstances. But here's the question that we must also ask, why do I need to be reborn? Well, quite simply put, Psalms chapter 51, Psalm 51 verse 5 tells us this. Psalm 51 tells us that indeed... I was guilty when I was born, and I was sinful when conceived in my mother's womb. Many of you may know this passage this way. I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The reason that I need to be reborn is because my first birth didn't work. 
They even said, well, wait a minute. Yesterday, Rob, we looking at you. We here? Our first birth didn't work. Why? Because we were supposed to have unbroken communion, community, and fellowship with God, and we were born without that. You see, we were born. Our first birth didn't work because... My life is brief. I was never designed for death. My world is broken because I share it with other broken people whose lives are brief. And my heart is constantly bent on things that do not honor God. Hear me carefully. My first birth didn't work. Why? Because my heart is bent on things that don't honor God. My life is brief, which is never the plan of God. And my world is broken, which was never the plan of God. That's why I need to be reborn. And those, those issues, the brokenness of my world, the brevity of my life, and the bitterness of my heart, neither of those are solvable by me or acceptable to God. Hear me carefully. None of those aspects of brokenness are solvable by me. I cannot fix the brokenness of my world. I cannot unbend my own heart. I cannot add uh, eternality to my own life. Those issues are unsolvable by me, but glory be to God, they are unacceptable to him. So what is God going to do? He invites us to be reborn. Let's go in a little bit further. Verses 10 through 16 tells us the nature of this rebirth. Now again, I want you to just soak in that. Why do we need to be reborn? Because our first birth didn't work. Just in case you're not convinced, let me ask you a question. Um... Have you ever had to teach a toddler to be selfish? Have you ever had to teach a child to be naughty? Have you ever had to teach a child to be boundaryless? Right? I mean, we have whole injuries that whole industries committed to putting small plastic locks and gates on things because our littlest ones, the moment that they discover mobility, they do not respect boundary. Do they not? They go under sinks. They found the smallest things to put in their mouths. Our very medicine bottles are made with the, the, the express intent of addressing the boundarylessness of children. You got to press down. You got to turn. You can't even open Tylenol anymore. Why? Because the heart doesn't have to be trained in naughtiness, boundarylessness, or selfishness. And as we become more complex and mature beings, we, we, we begin to amplify our selfishness, our boundarylessness, and also our ability to create naughtiness. Our first birth didn't work. We need to be reborn because from birth we have been doing things that are not solvable by us and not acceptable to God. What has God done? Well, verses 10 through 16 tells us some of that and why we need to be reborn. It says, are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus replied, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If we have told you about things that happen on earth and you, do, you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things in heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, that is the son of man. Uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the uh, wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have uh, eternal life. 
For, the, uh, for, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but everyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. In that brief stretch of passages, the word believe was used seven times. I think believe is probably a big deal here. You see, Jesus is calling us to trust him personally, to more fully understand my need for him thoroughly, to believe in him. Jesus calls us to believe in him personally, to understand our need for him thoroughly. What do we mean? The exact nature of, of, of this need for Jesus is depicted in how God actually presents the solution. Uh, let me give you an example from your, from your own life. We already live like this. Um, the call to believe or trust someone deeply or personally helps us understand our need more thoroughly. You do it all the time. You have a, a, a bump on your forearm, some raised abrasion. You go personally to a physician and you ask them to address this. Now let me tell you what you do. You trust them personally. You go there with your child, you go there with your own life, and let me tell you how you know that you trust them. Never once have you asked your doctor to see his credentials. Or never once when he gives a diagnosis do you ask him to back that up with the medical manuals and to give you kind of some kind of uh, orientation from all the years of medical school. You trust him personally. And because you trust him personally, you allow him to define your need thoroughly. You see this? Once you trust the person, maybe that's too high for you. You're a mechanic. You start up your car, there's a shake, a rattle, a drip, a ding. You know nothing about cars. You go to this person and you personally entrust them with the keys of this multi-thousand dollar investment that you've made. And if he comes out from behind the desk and tries to explain in, to the nth degree what's wrong, you'll be like, man, just let me know how much it's going to cost. Why? Because to trust him personally allows you to get definition of your need for him thoroughly. But we don't ask Jesus. So, so here it is. To trust Jesus fully isn't this invite to, to, to check our brains at the door. God has told us something about our need for him in actually the solution that he provides. This is a beautiful thing. But, but we are not, we are not uh, uh, how can I put it? We are not foreign to the idea of having to trust someone personally to understand our need thoroughly, and thoroughly understanding our need doesn't always mean that person has to unpack from A to Z every single thing is wrong. We already do in our lives. So why not trust Christ in the same way? But let's go further. In verses 10 and following, the Bible paints a picture for us. Jesus is startled, not startled, he's astonished, he's using hyperbole here. He says, are you a teacher in Israel and you do not know these things? In verse 10, I assure you we speak what we do know and what we testify and what we have seen. This mirrors exactly what John says in 1 John chapter 1. And he says, this is the testimony. We have seen God, we have handled, and he says, there is absolutely no darkness in him at all. That God is light and there is absolutely no darkness. And because there is no darkness, those who love darkness can't have fellowship with him. So he begins to define the righteousness and the holiness of God. This is his testimony, and you cannot have fellowship on the basis of your own personal righteousness. This is what this is an allusion to. But there's more than that. Then Jesus goes on and gives us somewhat what for some of us might be a cryptic reference. He says uh, in verse 14, 
just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So over in the book of Numbers, the people of God disobeyed God, and as a product of their disobedience, they were bitten by serpents. The people cried out in their anguish to Moses, and Moses interceded on their behalf. God then replied and said, if the people want salvation, if they want to be redeemed from this infraction, what they need to do is you need to make a a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and raise it up. And anyone who looks at it, anyone who looks at it will be healed from their malady. And Jesus says that this is an emblem of him. How and why? You see, we were bitten by something that looks just like Christ. We were bitten by the sin and the poison of the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, not the same. He's the second Adam, the superior Adam. And when we believe that and believe in him, we see that, we see God's solution. But what's interesting is that our problem paints a picture of the nature of our solution. In other words, if our solution, if our problem is sin, death, and the devil, then we need a solution that is directly related to those things. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves from sin, death, and the devil. And so God is the one who must create the solution. He is the one who must craft it. We must get saved on the terms and conditions which he creates for us. And then let's look at our favorite and our most popular passage in all the Bible. And let's just walk it out. It says, for God loved the world in this way. First thing I want you to do is he says he's loving the world this way, which means whatever the problem is, it is pandemic. It affects everything. Nothing is exempted from the brokenness and the invasion and the poison of sin and iniquity. The problem is pandemic. It says that the Lord loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, well, if the solution requires that lo- the, the Lord's love and, of the world, then it is a pandemic problem. It's everywhere, and it saturates everything. And if God sends his one and only unique son, then the problem that we have must be of the gravity that demands God's own personal investment and involvement. Can't outsource it. Got to take care of it myself. Can't call in a contractor. I've got to address this one. It it, it demands the the personal engagement of God. And then the Bible tells us that that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So if, if I don't believe, then I do perish. So now perishing is on the table. So if perishing is on the table, then that means that whatever my problem is, it's not only pandemic, saturates everything, not only is it so perilous that it demands the personal engagement of God, but then it also has eternal weight. It has eternal weight. It is something that I cannot escape. I can't just outweigh or outrun God. It has eternal weight. It has eternal ramifications for my life. And then the Bible goes on to say that the, it goes on to say that, uh, that, that we should not perish, but we should have eternal life. And it says that God did not send his son into the world that, that he might condemn it. Why? Because the world is already condemned unless he makes this interception. That's what the scriptures describe for us as being our greatest problem. It is, a, it is a, a problem or a situation that is currently not good to God, and he makes this prescription of what? Sending his own son. In other words, when we look at the son of Jesus Christ, what are we seeing in God's solution for our sin? We are seeing his love personified, we are seeing life exemplified, and justification and forgiveness ratified. I'll explain. The love of God is personified in Christ in this way. 
what else could God give besides himself? What else could God give? And so, 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 so the Lord looks at us on our situation, and he is not just having pity, but he has personal desire to see us made whole. It is the love of God is personified in the person of Christ. But it is also life exemplified. When we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly what real life is supposed to look like. That's how life is supposed to live. Jesus didn't just swoop in for three years. He didn't swoop in as a full-blown adult for two years or 20 minutes. He didn't go on a, like some kind of world tour like a rock star. He lived among us and showed us how life is supposed to look. And the Lord lovingly allowed the diary of his comings and goings to be recorded for us. Jesus is not only love personified, but he is life exemplified. This is exactly what it's supposed to look like. But God did more than that. In the Lord Jesus Christ, because he dies for us, it is a voluntary death that is a substitutionary death. He dies in our place. Because he dies in our place, why does he do that? Because our lives could not satisfy the sin. Our lives, we dying cannot fix a broken world, a bent heart. In other words, if I die with a bent heart, my heart's just bent. But only God, only God can fix these hearts. And he says, I'll repair those hearts if you'll place faith in my son who lived life exactly the way it was supposed to be lived. It is justification and forgiveness ratified in an incredible way and in a way that we've never seen done before, nor could we either fathom or imagine for our own selves. This is the message of John 3.16. You see, it is only possible to trust Jesus in a saving way when we realize that there is no salvation in doing life my way. I cannot fix myself. I cannot fix my world. And so the, 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 the realization of that draws me to see Christ clearly. What is this solution? Why is it necessary that God lovingly comes and personally comes and eternally comes to address this situation that is, that is plaguing our world? And it's only possible to trust Jesus. The, the, the gospel is foolishness. The gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. Well, what does it mean to perish? Those who still persist to produce salvation their own way. The solution of Jesus Christ seems foolish when I feel like I have enough strength to save myself. And so, verses 19 through 20, you have to look, 21, you have to look in your Bibles for these. It says, then this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because of their deeds. I mean, this is the Bible's own self-commentary around John 3.16. Hear it carefully. Why is, the, why is John 3.16 necessary? Because of this. This then is the judgment, that light is coming to the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wickedness hates the, thing, hates the light and avoids it, and so that the deeds may not be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown and accomplished, shown to be accomplished by God. In other words, when you take John 3.16 in light of the rest of the text, you cease to view John 3.16 and God's coming to us in love, in the love of Christ. You cease to see it as a romance, but you understand it as a necessary rescue. In other words, think about this. Put your Hoosier One hats on. Are we underselling the reality of the truth of God in the way we, we talk about the gospel. God is indeed loving, but to what extent and to what effect and why? If you look at John 3.16 in light of the whole passage, here's what you see. You don't see rolling green meadows, 
horses with muscular backs and no saddles on them running in slow motion in unison. And then here you come, barefooted in your favorite khakis or sundress over the hill, and from the other side, here comes Jesus in a loving, running embrace. Just like, oh, there you are, my child. And you guys meet in the middle of the stream, and he kind of picks you up, leans back, you throw your feet up, and, he, and y'all spin. And that's the end of the story. No, John 3.16 looks more like a bank in the middle of town that has been taken siege by a villain who loves to steal, kill, and destroy. You are in the bank, right? As a matter of fact, not only are you in the bank, but there are multiple other casualties that have been claimed. According to the radio, there are people laying wounded and dead, and they don't know exactly how many. This guy is limitless, and he refuses to negotiate. Overhead, helicopters come in, four black ropes drop down, and men in full-on tactical gear, right, began to, to, to cut a hole in the ceiling. One of them drops through the hole in the ceiling, and just as he sees the assailant, boom, takes one in the chest. But as he's falling, the bullet is calling his Kevlar, so he'll get back up. He takes aim and you gets the adversary right between the eyes and then he drops you and you're like, oh my goodness, you just saved my life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the picture of John 3.16. You've been radically rescued by someone who put their lives in harm's way for you. It is not a romantic bounce across flowing fields. You and I are in desperate trouble unless Jesus Christ cuts a hole and comes down to get us. This is the full story of John 3.16. We are in trouble. And yes, God is driven, motivated, and doing it as an act of love. But it is a rescue and not some romance. And when we constantly sell the love of God as being romance only, this God who just wants you, wants you, wants you, regardless of who you are, we are not painting the real picture of peril. Because the Bible tells us that those who do not believe are actively in a mode of perishing condemnation. That's your John 3.16. And so, Jesus calls us to be rescued not just to be romanced. But here's a question I have for you. How do you think Nicodemus responded to this message? Nicodemus makes about three or so more appearances in the scriptures after this. The first one is he seeks out the Christ privately under the cover of darkness. In the second episode, Nicodemus makes another appearance where his peers, the Pharisees, are currently scheming against Christ, and, 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 and Nicodemus speaks up publicly, comes to his defense, and holds people accountable to the law. And they turn to him and say, are you starting to believe in Jesus? The third time that Nicodemus shows up in Scripture, you know what it is? Jesus has been slain. He's laid down his life. And there with Joseph of Arimathea, here comes Nicodemus with fragrances and spices to memorialize the body of Jesus. Nicodemus went from a private seeker to a public defender to one who is personally devoted to the life of Jesus Christ. He would put his ego, he would put his relationship with the Pharisees on the line, he would put all all that he had publicly. No longer is he tiptoeing in the dark to find answers to his questions, but he is publicly going to celebrate the slain Christ. I believe, the scriptures don't tell me conclusively, but I believe that Nicodemus was reborn. But the point of today's message isn't my conjecture on whether or not Nicodemus made the move from just the facts of Jesus to placing full faith and belief in him and doing life in him. The point of the message is, do we make the move? Have you made the move? Or are you simply visiting, as is your tradition, 
and hearing the great facts about this wonderful place and person. But have you made the move? Have you made the move? Have you packed up everything and put the former life in the rearview mirror and relocated to where the Christ is and done your life exclusively and totally in him? And it is in him that you live and move and have your being. He becomes your new zip code. It's the place where you have life. And then here's the other question as you're wearing your who's your one hats. Will you go out this week and share with others how you made the move? Tell them the gospel indeed and tell people how the gospel impacted you to make the move. Will you go out as a part of your application? Will you go out to the, to the one that you're praying for and about? Will you go and will you, and, and, as part of your sharing the gospel, if you have or have not already articulated the, with clarity that Jesus Christ died for them in their place and giving up his life as the only thing that could satisfy the wrath of God against us, wonderfully and beautifully raised in power with victory over sin, death, and the devil, and if they place faith in him, they will participate in that same glorious victory. Will you go out and share that and then share how that same message made you move from just a traditional fact checker, message note taken, well-aligned American Christian to one who is now missionally engaged and your life has actually been relocated to fully and completely trust him. Will you share that story? Can you share that story? Is God making any moves in your life? Have you put some things in the rearview mirror? Would you be bold enough to share that? Would you be bold enough? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you for the beauty, glory, strength, weight, and clarity of your word. And we beg that you would, Lord God, give us fresh courage, boldness from your Holy Spirit, to go out and share with others how we made the move in you, towards you, and for you. Lord God, would you, would you alert us to the areas of our lives where we are just relishing the details of who you are and reciting the particulars of your public ministry but have yet to fully trust you in those areas of our lives? Will you convict us? Will you show us that? And in that conviction, will you further conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ? And would that conformity compel us, Lord God, to just kind of, even with shaking knees and trembling voices, go to our one and talk to them about how you moved us, oh God, from just hearing about you to being reborn in you. Would you, Lord God, would you please Lord God, we believe that this is a prayer that matches your will. And Lord God, just please, Lord God, if there's anything in our will that is getting in the way, saying that I'm not articulate, saying that I don't know the gospel, saying that I, I don't know the Bible that well, saying that the person that I'm praying for is a, is a ferocious intellect and I don't know how that's going to all go. Lord God, mow down by your spirit all of our fears and all of our rhetorics and our, all rhetoric and reasons for not sharing. And move us, Lord God, to share with people in our lives. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.